So good day, evening, good morning, wherever you're joining us from tonight. Uh, we look at uh, the law of evidence, chapter 16 on informal admissions. I am Robert Nanima, and I'll be taking you through the law of evidence for this semester. Most of the introductions were done, uh, all will be done during the main lecture uh, between period 8 and that is between 1550 and 1635. So briefly, what we are going to do, I'll be putting up the slides and a podcast to follow the slides. So you'll be using the podcast or that mp3 to play alongside the slides uh, for you to be able to follow. We shall still use the same book um, on principles of evidence by Pamela Swickard and Vanda Merve. And you don't have to buy the book. The materials on the slides will be sufficient. But they will refer to other materials that you will be supposed to read, like cases. So I would advise you to read the cases that are provided for under a particular topic uh, so uh, there are three major things that you should be able to take uh, from uh, tonight's discussion you should be able to understand the definition of an admission what is an admission you should be able to distinguish the difference between a formal admission and an informal admission then you should be because of that difference that you have known you should be able to appreciate the requirements for admissibility uh, the requirements with regard to relevance of such an admission when, when it can be relevant to a case and when it might be disclosed in court as part of evidence. I hope that's clear to that point. So, um, first and foremost, um, an admission is a statement that is made by a party that's adverse to his or her case. So, in other words, you admit something that you did and when that admission is taken into consideration that admission is against you or it's adverse to your case. You cannot admit something that is not adverse to you, otherwise that would not be an admission. You'd simply be leading evidence uh, that speaks to your facts in a particular case. So an admission has to be a statement that is made by a party that is adverse to your case. That is one. Then um, Secondly, there are what we call formal admissions and informal admissions. When we are speaking about a formal admission, we are speaking about an admission that is made in court. Is made in court. While an informal admission is made outside court. Or it's made in court without following the procedure for making it. So take, for example, um, a confession at a police station. That would be taken to be an informal admission because it's not done out, it's not done in court, but where the confession has been deduced to writing by a magistrate, then that would be a formal admission. So formal is within court and the informal is outside courts. These admissions can be in both civil proceedings and criminal proceedings. They are not limited to a particular form of proceedings. Then. Um, so when we talk about informal admissions, there are basically three kinds of informal admissions, and this will inform a great part of our discussion today. When we talk about uh, informal admissions, they can either be admissions by conduct, by the way a person conducts himself, and or they can be admissions by way of vicarious admissions, or they can be statements without prejudice. They are three types of informal admissions. So there are three types of admissions that can be made outside court. 
that can all the law that can be made in court without following the procedure for making formal admissions. That's by way of admissions. That's by way of vicarious. Sorry, that's by way of conduct. Admissions by conduct. That's by way of vicarious admissions. And thirdly, where you make a statement without prejudice. Now, when you talk about admissions by conduct, there are still about four kinds of admissions by conduct. Or three, if I could say so. The first is an admission where there is you admit by your silence, by your silence in a matter in court. Uh, for instance, I, I'll give an example where you asked about particular facts and you decide to keep quiet against them. You don't explain anything. Now, when a party elects to remain silent about particular facts concerning a case, the court might decide to use that silence as an informal admission. Now, however, it has to be known that where this admission by silence is in a criminal case, section 35 of the Constitution has to be triggered, whereby you have to balance the admission of silence against an individual's right to remain silent as an accused and against the fact that there is a presumption of innocence under section 35. So uh, this admission of silence to have a greater weight when it is a civil case. Uh, if it's a criminal case, that has to be balanced against the right to remain silent, the right not to incriminate his oneself, and the presumption of innocence under Section 35. So there has to be a balancing of those rights because um, if silence is used against the accused, then there we might have a problem. Uh, you might be violating his right to remain silent. Or if silence is meant to show that uh, the accused is not innocent, then you're simply saying that the accused should prove his guilt by speaking, which would be against the principle of uh, non-self-incrimination. So, uh, so there is need to balance those two. So the principle of uh, the fact that a person may really elect to remain silent um, court might use that silence as an informal admission. It was laid out in Jacob versus Haining, and uh, that it stated to that effect. Then um, another way of admission by silence is uh, where there is a failure to answer letters. For instance, one party uh, writes a letter that is suggesting his or her role in given facts or issues, and these letters are not answered. There is legal literature. For instance, at Shrikad and Van Amerva, they give examples that a letter that detailed the role of an individual or a company in the course of a fire was taken to be an admission. So the failure to answer letters, or the letters that you answer, the way that you answer them, if you give incriminating evidence against yourself, or if you give evidence that seems to point to your role in a particular activity, then that might be taken to be an admission uh, by your conduct uh, through the through the letters or the failure to answer thereof. But of course, uh, that does not mean it's, written, it's cast in uh, stone because um, there might be other aspects that might require more evidence. For instance, if you're asking me about the paternity of a child and I don't answer a letter, that does not mean I'm the father. Court would still Ad court would still say that yes, well, it might be seem like an admission, but we still need to get further and better evidence through contact, conducting a paternity testing issue. So the admission would add to the evidence that you're using, 
but it might not be sufficient to prove all the facts. You might need further evidence uh, to prove your facts. Then at times, still where you where we are talking about admissions by way of conduct, the sec the third way is where you make a statement in the presence of a third party, and uh, that statement is to the end that. Uh, you're giving or you're extending your role you're, you're trying to indicate what your role was in the occurrence of given events so it's that kind of statement uh, that kind of conduct that kind of admission of given facts might be taken to be an admission by conduct for instance in R versus Jackson the accused when he was asked whether he had obtained um, alcohol for a child <laughs> he kept quiet and uh, the court held that that silence was a statement in the presence of a third party. And his, this, this deme his demeanor, the way he looked, the way he conducted himself when he was asked and decided to keep quiet, was an admission by conduct. Fourthly, another way that you can have admission by conduct is where you fail to cross-examine there are instances where um, evidence has been led in chief and when you're asked to cross-examine to question the veracity of such evidence you decide to keep quiet uh, of course this has to be still weighed against the rights of an accused if it's in for a criminal case in under section 35 of the constitution uh, but generally um, the fact is that where you decide to keep quiet sorry, uh, where you decide not to cross-examine, where you decide not to cross-examine an individual. That might amount to an informed admission. Now, uh, point, let's get this clear. One thing is, yes, it's true, there, the, the failure to cross-examine is in court. But failure to cross-examine is not the, the formal way of making an admission the fact that it's not the formal way of making an admission that makes it an informal admission uh, this position was uh, settled in um, s versus matlale in 2000 where the court held that the failure to cross-examine on the samples with regard to the paternity of a child amounted to an admission of the appellant as the source this was based on the fact that the appellants cross-examined on the reliability of the analysis and not on the source so the question was how sure are we that these samples were analyzed properly the cross-examination was not on where did the samples come from so the fact that there was no cross-examination on the source of the samples but there was cross-examination on the reliability the court was of the view that the failure to cross-examine on the source of the samples amounted to admission by conduct so that is one way that's one form of um, of informal admission. The other form is called vicarious admissions, uh, whereby um, vicarious admissions, whereby um, the admissions may be by way of express or implied authority, or secondly, vicarious admissions might be way of actual declarations in furtherance of a common purpose. Or vicarious admissions might be of a way where there is issue of privity or, or identity of interest or obligation. Now, with regard to the first form of vicarious admission, one, vicarious admissions might be by way of express or implied authority. For instance, this uh, the best example is where there are agents and employees, where a statement made by an agent in the scope of his employment 
binds uh, the employer. So for instance, if um, for a, this is a good example, if an agent of UWC talks about uh, issues to do with registration, that registration uh, is free, you're not paying any fees, whether you have any fees that are outstanding, and that statement has been made by a person in the course of his employment, that statement might be taken to be a vicarious admission by the University of the Western Cape. So this can be whether by express or implied authority. So agents and employees would be covered. And there is a case of Caxton Breweries versus a funerary company. Another way is where the statement is by one of one of the partners in a partnership. I'll take an example of um, where a partnership says uh, this law firm, for instance, uh, and the law firms usually at times run as partnerships. Uh, a person says that this law firm has dissolved, it's no longer working. Uh, a statement by a partner would mean that it binds the other partners in the partnership. So that's another example of an informal vicarious admission. So if you make an admission, um, for instance, about the dissolution of a partnership, provided that uh, it relates to a transaction that was executed before that dissolution, as stated in S versus GAP and others, that would be taken to be a form of vicarious admission. Yes, uh, another example that we can use, a third example, is where an admission is by a legal representative. And, uh, for instance, where an attorney admits the facts of a given case such admission might be used against the client because it's the attorney who is speaking on behalf of the client and that is taken or that might be taken to be a form of vicarious admission. Uh, there are also other instances where um, spouses make um, statements or make admissions could be by way of conduct, could be by way of writing and they relate to their interests in the community estate. According to Allface versus Granding, the courts of the view that uh, in such admissions by spouses might be taken to be vicarious admissions, but also need to state where this is in a criminal matter that could be different because uh, I'm aware that um, they might be competent but not comparable witnesses as spouses. So that is something different, but they could be vicarious admissions made by a spouse and that, uh, that binds the other spouse. Then another form of vicarious admission is also, uh, a good example is also where we are swing about referees, where there's a reference to a statement made by a person where he or she refers to others for further information. You make a statement and you say for further information, talk to A, B, C, and D. That is a vicarious admission that could be binding and that could be also a form of informal admission. So um, that is it about vicarious admissions when you're talking about express or implied authority. Then we also have vicarious admissions where there are acts or declarations that are made in furtherance of a common purpose. Acts or declarations that are made in furtherance of a common purpose. I'll give an example. Uh, for instance, A, B, and C are engaged in a common purpose. The purpose could be to set up a company. The purpose could be to commit crime. The statement that any of them makes might be used to incriminate B or C, or it might be used as an admission against B or C. Uh, the interesting thing is that the statements should be able to show the executory aspects of the purpose 
In others, they should be executive, not executive, executive in nature rather than narrative. The statement should show this is how the purpose was carried out. This is how uh, this is how we decided to do it. The statement should not be a simple narration. This principle was laid out in R versus Blake. I'll repeat that. The statements should show how the purpose was carried out. Uh, this is how the execution was done by me when I was with B and C. Other than giving just a narration, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. So according to Rickard and Van der Merwe, there should be evidence first of a common purpose before these relevant statements are considered for admission. So what's the common purpose? We start up a company and then that company defrauds millions. There has been a common purpose at the beginning. That's why you'll see that persons will be charged with offenses. Evidence will be taken against persons uh, even where they were not the persons running or executing the purpose, but the fact that there was some form of common intention at the beginning, then that would be sufficient. Another form of vicarious liability, remember I said that there are three uh, forms. One is through express or implied authority. Second is through acts or declarations in furtherance of a common purpose. And thirdly, through privity or identity of interest or obligation. Now, when we talk about privity, we are speaking about instances where there are successive interests. Or uh, when we talk about identity, we are speaking about joint interests. For instance, employers and employees in a firefighting company, their interest is to stop a fire. There is an identity of interest. There is an identity of obligation. Then privity is, talks about successive interests. I'll give an example of privity of interest. For instance, where you seek a declaration that you are entitled to free and undisturbed use of a road across the defendant's property. When you say that all persons who are going to be part of that property, all persons who will succeed in title of that property, will have to recognize your entitlement to the free and undisturbed use of that road, of that land. For instance, I have a piece of land, um, the sectional title, and you seek a declaration that the sectional title, um, um, you have a right to use of a particular road that comes to that sectional title. Whichever person is adjunct or adjacent or close to that road, whether the person dies and his estate takes up that land, it is not in doubt that that person who succeeds will continue to respect, to recognize your interest. That is privity uh, of an interest. That is privity of an interest. Then when you talk about um, when you talk about identity of interest, I've given an example where you all run, you all, you all run the joint interest and your interest has, as such places an obligation on you, where such an interest places an obligation on you, then any admissions in that form where they should be by conduct, they might be vicariously extended to you or the others. Uh, so that is uh, with regard to privity uh, or with regard to C. So those are examples of vicarious liability. Now, now someone asks a question that supposing we have an instance of an employee and employee 
can we say that there is a vicarious admission? Shrikad says that if the employee, for instance, commits a delict in the course of his employment, his statement is against or might be used as admissible against his employer. I'll take an example of a, a doctor at Tiger Bank Hospital or a doctor in a private establishment, Panorama Medic Clinic, and he performs a surgery without consent. In such an instance, the fact that he has committed a delict, the fact that he has committed this in the course of his employment, that statement might be used against him as a doctor, Dr. Mplanga, as well as the employer with its Tigerberg Hospital because of the nature of the action that he has taken. Uh, then uh, there are also instances, uh, still other examples of vicarious admissions, where uh, we talk about nominal and real parties. Swickard and Van der state that uh, where a guardian litigates on behalf of a child, a confession by the child may be admitted against the guardian. So if you're going to court and you are the one representing this child and you're doing this on his behalf, if the child says something, if it's detrimental, it might still be used against you because of the principle of vicarious admissions. So that is vicarious admissions. So we go to the, the uh, last one, statements made without prejudice as a type of informal uh, as a type of informal admission. Statements without prejudice are usually referred to uh, statements that, that are made, but usually parties want to qualify them so that they are not um, used against them. It's very common with attorneys where they usually write letters at a party's heading without prejudice, and they usually say that the rationale for doing this is to ensure that the contents of the letter are not used to the prejudice of their rights of the clients. The words without prejudice are not sufficient to protect the statement from this being disclosed unless particular conditions are met. So as you start your law firms in future, as you go into practice, uh, the fact that you've said without prejudice, it does not mean that it will not be used. It might still be used subject to some conditions that have to be met. Now, first of all, um, so those are the sorry, those are the types of informed admissions, but they still are something that we still need to talk about in terms of when may these admissions be used in evidence, when may they be used. So far, we have defined an admission, we have seen the difference between formal and informal, and we have taken a great deal of time to speak about informal admissions. And we have said that there are three types, by conduct, by vicarious admissions, and by statement without prejudice. We have given examples of each. Admissions by conduct, they are four types. Uh, vicarious admissions, they are three types. And then um, statements without prejudice, we have also discussed them. And we say some conditions have to be met. You, go, you simply don't say without prejudice and you think that that is uh, sufficient. No, that might not be sufficient. Now, um, there's something that I would like to speak to um, that will come up or it might come up in the question of what's the difference between an admission and a confession? We have said that a confession might be a form 
of formal admission if it's made in court. But at times it's made at police. Why can't we call a confession at police an admission? Now, the general rule is that an admission by an accused refers to a statement in criminal proceedings which an accused makes, which is adverse to his or her case. If this statement is made outside court, it is informal. If it's made in court, it is formal. So that is an admission. You admit to particular facts. You admit to the existence of particular facts. You admit that you were present when some particular things were happening. You admit that you played a critical role. Such a statement, even if it does not point to your guilt, but it's adverse to your case, such a statement will show, will be an admission by an accused person. That is an admission. Now, a confession, a confession is an equivocal acknowledgement of guilt. Now, when we're dealing with a confession, we're dealing with the fact that a particular offense has been committed. They have read to you the charge and they ask you um, what your statement is or what you have to say. And in making that admission, you admit that you committed the offense. When you admit that you committed the offense, then that means um, if it's uh, for purposes of um, a process, then that means the police has to obtain a charge and question statement from you that would then amount to a confession. So when you're dealing with a confession, you're talking about an unequivocal acknowledgement of guilt. You're talking about commission of an offense. You're talking about the fact that you are pleading. You're basically pleading guilty. The equivalent of what you're doing, you're simply saying, I did it. If it's a case of madam, I did it. If it's a case of culpable homicide, I committed the offenses and the ingredients. I speak to all the ingredients that uh, have been spoken about. Now, the requirements for admissibility of an admission is that first of all, it must be voluntary. As verse clearly says, it must be voluntary. If there's a promise of advantage in authority, that statement would be inadmissible. If there is a threat that you should make this admission, if you don't ad if you don't make the admission, this will this will be used against you, or you should make this confession, then that confession uh, will not be admitted because that threat will be operative in the mind of the accused when he's making the admission or when he's making the confession. Then secondly, if there is duress, if there is influence of a person who is making the admission, the duress has to flow from a person in authority, a person who is capable of directing the conversation in that space. Uh, that was in Al versus Dlamini. For instance, if it's the DPP, or if it's a state prosecutor, or if it's a particular investigating officer saying, uh, if you do this, we shall go easy on you. If you do this, we promise you this and this. Then that kind of influence, if it operates in the mind of the individual, if it operates in the mind of the person making the admission, then 
uh, that admission will not be uh, admitted, will not be admissible. Then um, a person should not be compelled to make a confession admission that will be used against him. This is a constitutional, a constitutional directive under Section 35.1c of the Constitution. So now, uh, supposing there are instances where a confession has not been admitted, the accused uh, has pleaded not guilty, though he has made an admission with regard to what he did. If he confesses to the fact that the particular facts that he did, the prostitution may subject that admission to cross-examination. And thereafter, depending on the cross-examination, if it's of a document, then that document might be admitted in evidence. If it's a civil case, if it's cross-examination to a document or facts, then uh, in the submissions, counsel puts it to the court that those particular facts are taken to be an admission. And then in in reference to the burden of proof, any burden of proof that speaks to the guilt of the accused remains on the prosecution and the standard is that of beyond reasonable doubt. That's why even when a confession is made, it might be submitted to subjected, sorry, to further cross examination, to a trial within a trial, to establish the voluntariness of its make of its being made. So um the burden of proof rests on the prosecution and the standard is that of beyond this reasonable doubt. But when it comes to admissibility, um, it's more about evidential admissibility. But we shall discuss that when we're talking about admissibility of documents. Uh, so um, precisely, uh, that is it about Chapter 16 on informal admissions. Uh, look at the slides. The slides are sufficient. They have cases that could help you in this regard. And these have already been put up on eCanva. I welcome question and uh, Q and questions, which I will take. Um, I might set. I might send another audio answering your questions, if they are any. Uh, tomorrow I'll put up the slides and the, um, and the podcast for chapter seventeen. Uh, please take time to self study it over the weekend. Then on Monday we shall continue with. Uh, kinds of evidence. I thank you so much and have a great week.